Hey, it's Latif from Radio Lab. Our goal with each episode is to make you think, how did I live this long and not know that? Radio Lab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know. Listen wherever you get podcasts. This is The Takeaway. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry. This is President Biden in 2022. When it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police. It's fund the police. Fund the police. July 2014, New York City police killed Eric Garner. I'm determined to get justice for my husband because he shouldn't have been killed in that way. He shouldn't have been killed in any way. He should be here celebrating Christmas and Thanksgiving and everything else with his children and his grandchildren. August 2014, Ferguson police killed Michael Brown. I've been here my whole life. I never had to go through nothing like this. July 2015, Sandra Bland died in police custody in a Waller County, Texas jail. I was expecting to have a few answers as to what happened to my daughter. It's fund the police. Fund the police. October 2019, Fort Worth police killed Atatiana Jefferson. We want to get to the point where we don't have to be here. That's where it's, it's one thing to have a guilty verdict now, but we don't want to have to keep coming here. Why do we have to, as people of color, have to keep coming? It, it shouldn't happen. We ought to be safe in our own homes. March 2020, Louisville, Kentucky police killed Breonna Taylor. Y'all learning what we've been seeing was the truth, that Absolutely. they shouldn't have been there and that Breonna didn't deserve that. Right. May 2020, Minneapolis police murdered George Floyd. We were served a life sentence. We can't get George back. Gianna can't hug George again. Fund the police. January 2023, Memphis police killed Tyree Nichols. This incident was heinous, reckless, and inhumane. Twenty-nine-year-old Tyree Nichols had an infectious laugh. He made everyone around him happy. Tyree was a son to his mother. He was a father to a four-year-old son. Tyree was an avid skateboarder and a photographer who found unique beauty in the sunsets he captured on film. He wrote down his dreams for his art, writing, My vision is to bring my viewers deep into what I'm seeing through my eye and out through my lens. He signed it, your friend, Tyree Nichols. The artist with a photographic eye for detail was nearly unrecognizable to his family when they arrived to see him at the hospital. He died a few short days after his arrival. And like far too many before her, Tyree's mother, Ravon Wells, spoke to a public who never knew her child in life, but watched him die at the hands of police. No mother, no mother, no mother should go through what I'm going through right now. No mother to lose their child 
to the violent way that I lost my child. When it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police, it's fund the police. Fund the police. Fund the police. Fund the police. Every single year since 2013, police have killed more than 1,000 people, more than 1,000 names, more than 1,000 stories, more than 1,000 families. Every single year. On Tuesday morning, I spoke with Christian Davenport, professor of political science at the University of Michigan and author of The Death and Life of State Repression. Christian, thank you for being here. Of course. Let me just start by asking my friend and colleague, how are you doing um, in this moment? You bring it. Um, I mean, very complex moment, but um, it's, it's a process to deconstruct what has been constructed and try to think through where we are. So I'm, I'm glad to be another at another inflection point where we can get to this conversation. Uh, Christian, back in the, in the late fall, our uh, political science colleague and my sometimes co-host Dorian Warren and I um, here on The Takeaway took a deep dive into abolition. And we're trying to really think about how to wrap our heads around it. And we came away as professors probably makes sense that we would with a framework where we describe ourselves as students of abolition as a way to try to understand where we're positioned. So as students of abolition, can you help me to understand what are some of the lessons that we can learn from this police slaying of Tyree Nichols? We're dealing with this multi-tentacled beast that is the nation state. In our particular context in the United States, we have approximately 18,000 different institutions that are like this. And so just get just trying to get your head around that, that, that the movements involved, the different parts involved, the different levels of government that are involved in communication, that's a major lesson. So there is no there's no simple path to abolition. There is no simple path to reform in that particular context. And so that's why we just need to keep revisiting it and keep rediscussing it and keep reapproaching it. But that multi-tentacle beast, that image is, I think, incredibly helpful for trying to think of a way forward. When you say nation state, you, of course, remind me immediately that one of the ways that we define the state is to say what makes the state the state is that it has this monopoly on the legitimate use of violence, force and coercion, right? That when police do something, when the state does something that if a private citizen did it, um, would kind of clearly be seen as outside the bounds we invest the the police with the right or with some kind of presumed capacity, right, to do things like, for example, handcuff us and take us away. If a private citizen did that, it would always be kidnapping. <laughs> and so I guess I'm, I've, I'm wondering in this moment, when these officers are charged with things like kidnapping, is it an indication that they were not acting as the state? No, I mean they're they're very much the the agents of the state. That always needs to be remembered. Although your your characterization is interesting, right? It's like we didn't actually we actually didn't vote on this. We inherited this. And in many in many respects, if you look at the history of the state, the state took the position that they have currently, and then through coercion and force, they helped maintain it. 
So the the difficulty with this particular moment and even thinking of abolition in general is we're talking about trying to modify exactly as you said the thing that is most core to the identity and purpose of this political entity we're going at the core of it and and we don't even we rarely make that connection to the international component having just passed the largest defense budget in history the carceral state discussion the discussion about coercion and force is both domestic and international and we separate them we don't address them both concurrently and that's the that's the that's the essence of the thing we're trying to get at which is the core of the nation state when you talk about that core of the nation state and the ways that it rests on violence force and coercion you know it's it's tough in certain ways to even have a conversation about abolition even in the context of this level of police violence in part because people right now are terrified of violence by other citizens. I mean, just yesterday, right? Another mass shooting in America, 10 shot in Lakeland, Florida. I'm sure many waking up in their local communities to gun violence and deaths. Do the police make us safer? Is it reasonable to talk about police abolition at a time when so many feel unsafe? I mean, the perception of one's safety and actual safety are very different, right? I mean, so all the events that we just mentioned, all the different forms of violence are still incredibly rare. On a daily basis, hour to hour, we're still incredibly safe. Um, relative to other industrial advanced societies, okay, yes, then the United States starts to stick out a little bit, but I don't think that is not much of an issue, um, actual violent behavior. The difficulty then becomes in the perception. The perception is driving a lot of it, and the perception not connected to this reality is incredibly complex to negotiate with. But your your idea or your, your question regarding, um, is it even possible? What, where's the space within which we can have this conversation? I, I think is fascinating to the extent to which for most of human existence, we've existed without this political entity having this coercion in force. Cephalous civilizations. For most of our existence on the planet, we've been there. For most of the pandemic, we had this resurgence of mutual aid with just people showing up for one another, interacting with one another, saving one another, helping one another. That's exactly how I think most of us live our days. This is basically how we get through. The state has got nothing to do with it. The state is not present. And so there's this element of part of the conversation has this over-reliance upon the state. Oh, we think they're necessary for this. We think they're needed for this. It turns out that I don't think the state is needed for, for many, many things which they're overextended to. And so it's that conversation that I think is incredibly useful. We have, after the Civil War, industrialization, World War I, World War II, the state stepped forward to, to help, but also mutual aid societies showed up, mutual aid associations showed up, Association for the Improvement of the Condition of the Poor and stuff like that, Children's Aid Society. And so most of the time, I think it's citizens that are there for other citizens that resolve most of the problems that we have. I feel like you're 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 inching us up to sort of towing the line of understanding what the world looks like in a context of abolition. So we'll get yeah. to the politics of this in a moment, but help me to understand because I, I get the sort of interest to draw from the notion of abolition, but but help me to understand sort of what exists in the vacuum that would be in its place. How would our lives be organized? It's interesting you use that word vacuum, right? It's like so. I mean. Uh, effectively, we're in, the, we're in the realm of political science fiction at this point. We're talking Octavia Butler. We're talking about how do we imagine this thing that we don't think is imaginable. 
it's not been there for most of the time. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's um, the state's presence is is attempting to kind of be in our lives in some Jim Scott kind of way or some panopticon kind of way. But most of our existence is without the state already. And so we're, we're, we're in a sense already there. Um, but this other element, because everyone will jump immediately to, well, what if what if the brother shows up at my door with a shotgun? I'm like, OK, well, probabilistically speaking, that's not going to happen. And second, it's probably somebody, you know, and that's the, that's the scariest thing, right, about when you start talking about everyday violence. Most of the violence that happens to us takes place by people that we know. So there needs to be something with regards to a connection and understanding of exactly where the threats emerging from and how do we address them. And this gets back to kind of us having a better sense of exactly how we relate to one another and that we don't rely upon the state for most of our existence. The state doesn't want us to know this. <laughs> it's like they want us to feel that they're necessary for a lot of things. And I'm definitely not taking a position that there's no role for the state because there clearly is. Stick with me for just one moment. We're going to take a quick break, but we're going to come right back and continue our conversation with Christian Davenport of the University of Michigan. We're talking about abolition, what it looks like, and whether or not it's possible. It's The Takeaway. Every memory you think you have of the past. The house you grew up in, your first kiss. It's not simply an idea, it's a physical trace left in your brain. I own those memories. They define me. But what happens when those memories are stolen from you? In the blink of an eyelid. Can you imagine it's right to have one night 20 years long? That's what it's been like. Just like this. Memory and Forgetting on Radio Lab. Listen wherever you get podcasts. I'm still with Christian Davenport of the University of Michigan. We're talking about the ways that the brutal police slaying of Tyree Nichols has once again spotlighted calls for police abolition. Now, back in October, Dorian Warren and I took a deep dive into the issue of police abolition here on The Takeaway. And one of our guests was Philip Atiba Goff, co-founder and CEO of the Center for Police Equity. He talked about one of the most significant challenges to implementation of abolition. It's a good question, and it's a hard question to answer because in the United States, we've got 18,000 law enforcement agencies, roughly um, uh, 75% of them are 25 officers or fewer, and there's a thousand that are just one dude, and it's always a dude. So lots of folks want to go to federal immediately, right? We can't do that because the federal government doesn't have jurisdiction over the folks who show up with badges and guns You know, when, when you call 911. But boy, do, do we wish we could wave a magic wand or start to think about a problem uh, or set of solutions at a national level. That's why it's tricky, because our understanding and the scope of the problem is national, but the way we've set things up is super, super local. All right, Christian, I want to come to you on this because you were mentioning this sort of earlier in our conversation, 18,000 law enforcement agencies around the country. What does it mean to think about moving toward abolition under these highly decentralized circumstances? This is like um, the peril of federalism, right? This is this is a this is a problem on crack. I mean, essentially, we're trying to this. This is why I wanted to lead with that kind of like image of the multi tentacle object, um, trying to regulate eighteen thousand entities that rarely communicate with one another, and in many respects, don't have the capacity to communicate with one another this is going to be incredibly difficult. Now, 
were eased from the fact of, and as correct as your um, as your speaker was before, the majority of these are very small. So it is possible to kind of work out some system of education or training, but then it needs to be federalized, which is there's going to be some pushback against that. And so just getting your head around those notions, I think, are incredible. The difficulty, though, is part of the dip, part of the issue with, with with police abolition is to address what will be taking its space, what will be taking its place with regards to societal regulation or helping people that need it. And a lot of these institutions went away in the 70s with the privatization of social work. And so we need to get back to kind of like, okay, we used to provide a bunch of things that didn't necessitate the police showing up. Those things were squeezed out, went away. Those were defunded. And we need to figure out a way of bringing those back. I want to dig in on this question of the federal for just one moment, though, because there is a way that this, especially in a moment like this one um, in Memphis, we we end up with sort of a national focus or conversation. And the Congressional Black Caucus has requested a meeting with President Biden to discuss police reform. He's indicated he's open to the meeting. If we um, step back from abolition for a moment to reform, I'm wondering if you think the kinds of reforms contained in the George Floyd Policing Act would be likely to address some of the core problems that you've identified. They don't tend to address the issue of to what end are the police put? And until we can get to this foundational issue of like, okay, exactly what role are they going to have within society? That's going to be a problem. I think the discussion they have about police use of force policies, at least having some, and then starting a national debate around what is and is not appropriate, I think that part would be useful. But I mean, some of the major solutions that we saw, uh, saw put forward were present in Memphis, right? Okay, we need integration of the police force. We need body cameras. We need a bunch of things that didn't seem to be directly related. So we need to revisit the issues of causes. Also acknowledge that our, not only does our data on the violence, not only is that horrible, but our this number of systematic investigations of what works is also horrible. And in terms of evidence-based policing, none of it is suggesting that much of the, what's being suggested is actually working. So we're not in a good state for having this conversation. As I continue to try to search for, for lessons out of this, um, I, I'm wondering if the blue becomes more apparent in this case because five of the six officers so far and the five who have all been charged are also young black men that so much of kind of what happened post um, the murder of George Floyd I mean a lot of it happened in these kind of odd cultural spaces that Mm -hmm. didn't seem to be structurally about policing things like changing you know, racialized imagery in products or Mm. saying primary bedroom instead of master bedroom. (laughs) I mean, things that weren't really related to policing. And and in this case, I I wonder if the fact that these officers are black helps us to focus in on the officer aspect. No, I think that's right. I mean, they had cameras, they were black, the chief was black. I mean, it's just like when you go down the list of things that um, eight can't wait or whatever, whether the different organizations came up with, it's like, okay, check, check, got that, got that, still have the violence. Okay, so this might distract, this might get us away from some of the things that don't actually matter and to get us to dig down deeper into, okay, so how did these folks end up in this space? But again, some of this is not new, right? So we knew that in the 90s and the aughts, 
that some police departments were recruiting white nationalists into the police force because they knew they would behave a particular way. So we really need to dig into who was recruited. What are the personality tests involved? What kind of personalities would we want? And so part of the lesson for me is also Scandinavian. I'm just like, it's useful for me to get out of this context to see another one, to see how police are interacting with citizens to go, oh, that's what's possible. That's that's how people could speak to one another that have a badge. And so from my perspective, that I think you're right on it, which is now we get to the core of that police enterprise, its relationship to the state, its relationship to control and order and inequality. And that space, we could kind of get there and get away from some of the stuff that doesn't really matter. Christian Davenport, professor of political science at the University of Michigan and author of The Death and Life of State Repression. Christian, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you very much.